G'day guys, welcome to the Origin Canine Podcast, where our mission is to enhance the full life cycle of working canines and handlers. The podcast is now available on YouTube and all major podcast platforms. If you're looking for our Australian-made tactical canine equipment, go to origincanine.com. Enjoy the show. guys welcome to another episode of the origin canine podcast uh this is take two for tara um <laughs> so tara is my my guest today she's the first woman i've had on the podcast thank the lord oh, sorry second woman i've had on the podcast but the first episode that's going to be released um did another episode with the canadian lady but um due to some conflict of interest with their work we won't be releasing that episode unfortunately because it was really good um so i'll make the same joke that i made before tara uh, don't fuck this up. <laughs> I already did. It wasn't recording. It's just as funny the second time, but it's funny because I was like, don't fuck it up, Tara, but I didn't even press the record button before. So that's just me, me deflecting the blame on you. <laughs> just gaslighting you. Uh, anyway, thank you very much for coming on the podcast twice. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That's all good. It's great to have you back. Uh, so, Tara, we were talking about you growing up in Jersey. Tell us again about growing up in Jersey and then leading into the Merchant Marine Academy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Jersey gets a bad rap. Um, it's what people call it the armpit of America. They say it stinks. You know, it's uh, right below New York. Um, but I grew up in kind of South Central New Jersey, um, and it's it's really not that bad there. Uh, very suburban, um, you know, white picket fences, the whole nine yards. Uh, so very very good very good childhood. Lots of opportunities. Um, great great public school system uh, with lots of lots of opportunities to grow and excel there. So I, I really don't have any complaints. Um, we kind of talked about the Jersey Shore um, in our in our first little chat. And that's probably the, the worst show to ever come out of New Jersey, just because none of those people are actually from there and they, they all give us a really bad name. Yeah. Cause you, you see that show and, and you're like, Oh man, it must be that that's must be what it like, you know, but obviously it's just a stupid reality TV show. So they just, they pick these outrageous characters, right? hundred percent. And, you know, obviously it makes for good TV for them, um, but bad publicity for us. And it also made traffic and tourism in the area an absolute night <laughs> nightmare during that time as well. Yeah. Cause what years did that show come out? It was like 2010 sort of time. Oh goodness. I don't even, I don't even remember. Um, it's been, I had long since left by, you know, left home by then. Um, yeah. Left, but, and there's some of your listeners may remember um, way back when MTV was still a big thing. Um, MTV had the like MTV beach house in the summer. And when I was in high school, the beach house was actually in the same location basically as the Jersey shore. Um, so there's been a, a few shows that have come out of the area that have not been. And then of course, anybody at guilty pleasure, I'll admit it, uh, real housewives of New Jersey. They also Ooh. have summer houses down there. So um, again, we're not dealing with the best representations of our area. 
Yeah, why is that? Why does Jersey? Why do they they film these weird shows in Jersey? Is there is there some like under culture undercurrent of those people or? You know, I, the only thing I can think is the proximity to New York, and you know, a lot of those places like where the people from the Jersey Shore came from. Um, you know, where a lot of the housewives come from, North Jersey, they come down to South Jersey um, for the summertime, uh, and and we actually call them the name we use for them and being from south jersey is benny and it stands for brooklyn elizabeth newark and new york which are a lot of the areas that they come from and come down so they you know create all that summer traffic and all that kind of stuff so i don't i guess it's just because it's close enough to like those folks that are wealthy enough to come down and have summer houses in the area and stuff like that but i don't know it's kind of not fair (laughs) yeah because i went there like I said before, I went there in 2019 with my missus, um, and New York was awesome. We had the greatest time, um, but we stayed in Jersey for a period of time, and it was like it was really beautiful. I really liked it. Yeah, there, there are some some really awesome areas. We're we're talking about horses. Excuse me, a little bit ago, um, some really beautiful horse farms in like the western part of the state and stuff like that. So you just got to get out of the the cities, really. Yeah, because we kind of, at one point, we went to this, like, monster truck rally, of all things, and we must have driven through a bunch of poor suburbs because it was a bit bit dilapidated. But then we got to these sort of, you know, like you said, white picket fence, beautiful-looking whitewashed houses kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, it just yeah. seems like a bit of an eclectic mix of stuff. It, it really is. I mean, literally, you can get everything in the state, just depending on where you are. Yeah. So what was that like then transferring, uh, sorry, uh, transitioning from Jersey into the Merchant Marine Academy? Like, why did, why did you do that? So I, I knew at a very young age that I wanted to go into the military. Um, I actually wanted to enlist into the military from high school. At the time, I was only 17. And in order to do that, my parents would have had to sign because um, I wasn't 18. And they were not willing to do that. They really wanted me to go to college, uh, which I appreciate. You know, they were looking out for my best interests. So, I, again, I knew I wanted to go active duty in the military. So going into a federal service academy was kind of the next best thing, vice going straight active duty, um, because I was able to get a, a college education and still end up active duty, which is what I ultimately wanted. Yeah. And is is this because of September 11? Like, whereabouts in that sort of period were you looking to enlist? So I'm I'm aging myself again. Um, <laughs> seeing the theme here, um, but no. So September 11th actually, ironically, happened while I was a freshman at the Merchant Marine Academy. And if you can kind of picture this, um, you know, you have the Long Island Sound, which separates New York City and Long Island, which is where the Merchant Marine Academy is. So everybody who was at school with us that day, we literally very literally watched the second plane hit the tower and we watched both the towers fall from the waterfront of our school. Jesus. Um, wow. Yeah, it was because we got, we were in class and we got, somebody came in and was like, Oh my God, the world trade center is on fire. And so of course, like we all run up to the roof of the building to like, see if that's actually what's going on. And then lo and behold, um, and then we kind of, they, obviously they canceled class after that. So we had nothing else to do. Everybody was just outside watching. And um, I mean, it was, it was hard to see, but like you could tell what happened when it went from like two buildings to just like basically a pile of smoke. Um, yeah. 
But at that point, I had a, I'd already known that I, I wanted to go active duty. I thought I wanted to go active duty in the Navy at that time. Um, it was shortly thereafter that I decided I wanted to go into the Army. It was really like once OAF, OEF really kicked off and all that, that I decided to go into the Army instead of the Navy. Is that because obviously you'd seen September 11, like fucking right there. Um, did you want to go to the Army after that because you wanted to be close up to the action? Yeah. Um, you know, again, watching everything kind of happen on TV, like as we made the initial push in to Iraq and stuff like that and seeing all of that kind of, you know, really solidified um, that, that I wanted to be part of that, you know. Um, yeah. Plus, <laughs> so as part of our college, we spend a year out at sea on merchant ships. Um, so I had spent already spent a year on mostly um, what they call military sea lift command ships, which basically their their sole purpose is to resupply the Navy, um, which was a lot of fun and really cool. But I was like, eh, I don't really want to be on a ship, you know, six months out of the year. So kind of a double edged sword there. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that's quite a hard life being in the merchant Navy like that, too. Hey? Yeah, it has its moments. I mean. The food is always really good. Uh, they feed those those folks really well, I guess, you know, keep them happy because they're underway for, for so long, but just not not really my cup of tea. Uh, it's a tough and, and I don't I don't play this card very often, but it is a, a difficult environment as a female too. Yeah, I imagine it's um, it's like that real, you know, swashbuckling almost pirates sort of, you know, the old guys with the big beards and it's it's that sort of environment, right? hundred percent, hundred percent. And, you know, I'm sure it's much better now than it was then. Cause again, this was more years ago than I care to admit. Um, you know, there was not many females and they still at the time, this was early two thousands, you know, didn't these old guys like, didn't like seeing young females coming on their ships. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So just, I want to just wind back to September 11th for a bit, if, if you're okay. Yeah. Um, what was the timing between the two planes hitting? And at what point did you go, ah, oh, this is very deliberate? Obviously, um, the second plane hitting would have been an yeah, indicator. So it, it, well, it was 8.50 something and then like 9, 10 or 11. It was, it was minutes. It, it was not very long. Um, again, you know, we didn't have, I did have a cell phone. It was one of those Nokia flip phones, if you can remember those. Um, but yeah. I didn't have it with me in class. The only clock we had was on the wall. So I don't, I don't recall like looking at the exact time at that moment. I just know I was still in, it was the end of my first class of the day when the first one hit. Um, and in between classes, like I said, we went up and, uh, went up to the roof and, and saw that stuff. Um, but it was it, basically at that moment when that second plane hit that, you know, and then all of a sudden, everything on the academy shut down. They put us in the lockdown. You know, barricades came out at the gates and all that stuff. Um, yeah. And did you hear it when they first hit or did you, did you oh, see yeah. it on? Oh, you heard it. Okay. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It, like, so if you were to, like, as the crow flies, maybe a mile by water, like straight across the water. Wow. Okay. Yeah, because I remember sailing on this, um, like a touristy sort of boat when I was there in 2019, and I think we went 
uh, I don't know how close it would have been, somewhere near that Naval Academy. There was a Navy base somewhere where we were, but it's um yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of waterfront there where you get fucking front row seats to so that that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. Oh man. So um probably probably a probably not a, the best memory, but do you remember seeing people jumping from the towers? Could you see that sort of detail? We couldn't we couldn't see that. Um, we were too far for that. But the thing I think that most of us probably remember the most is the smell. Um, there was like a line of smoke in the air that seemed to go on for miles and it probably did honestly. Um, and the smell like burning and like burning flesh, if you've ever smelled that it's, you know, pretty distinct smell. Um, plus obviously the burning buildings. Um, some of our, we have volunteer EMTs that our midshipmen at the academy, um, they went over to help with some of the rescue efforts um, because we had the boats and stuff like that. The academy was set up as a, um, it never got used, but it was set up just in case as a, a temporary like morgue, basically, just as a place to, to put, put bodies if need be. Um, again, on the waterfront, it was a, a quick shot from, you know, where the towers were to where we were. Did you end up going over and assisting in the efforts or they tried to keep you away because it was locked down? They, the only folks that went were those that were certified EMTs. Yeah. Did any of those guys, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, I was gonna say there's only a handful of them. And had the towers already collapsed at that stage? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So they, they didn't get crushed in the. No, 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 no. They were, this was well after, well after all of that. Jesus. Wow. That's intense, Tara. Very intense. Oh man. All right. Well, let's, um, let's get past September 11, right? So how long do you then have at college before you enlist in the army or commission in the army? Sorry. So it's a regular four-year college, just like any other college. Um, however, because of that year that we do out at sea, um, we do all of our, we did all of our college work in three years at the, at the school. And then when you go out on the ships, they give you what they call a C project, which is basically a year's worth of curriculum that you have to do on your own and then turn in, it gets graded. And then they do an oral board, um, when you get back. Okay. And what, so you had, you put your hand up and then go on, yeah, I want to go to the army or they were just. Yep. So at the time they were heavily recruiting for transportation officers. Again, this was like the initial push, um, the initial invasion, that kind of thing. And they really needed transportation officers. My degree is actually in Marine transportation. Um, not, not super popular in the, in the civilian world, but especially at the time definitely had value for, for the army and what, what they needed, um, you know, intermodal transportation and that kind of thing. So they were heavily recruiting. It was like, if you come in and you, become a transportation officer, we'll send you anywhere you want to go. Um, so no like signing yeah. bonuses or anything, but as much incentive as they could give. <laughs> no signing bonuses. <laughs> we don't have that in Australia. Hey, we don't have, uh, to my knowledge anyway, like incentives to go to certain trades, for example, but there may be, I just don't know about it, but it seems like a somewhat common thing over there. They have... Um, these contracts, like a ranger contract, or you do, yep. you know, X, Y, Z. Most definitely. I think the guys, so 
where I live here in um, the Charleston area, Charleston, South Carolina, um, there's a really big nuke school for the Navy, and those guys get some crazy signing bonuses. Because of the danger or the proximity to nuclear material? Uh, both, I guess. I'm honestly not 100% sure what the reasoning is. I, I also think it's, you know, very, there's a very limited pool of people who can do that and have that knowledge. So they yeah. try to keep them. Um, but they also know that these folks can go into the civilian world and make like three or four times what they're making on active duty. Or go to China and make six to eight times. <laughs> So, so, you know, you have this 20 something that they like dangle this number. Oh, we'll give you this much as a signing bonus. And in their mind that again, at 20 something, they're like, hell yeah, sign me up. And then they don't realize, you know, six, eight years is a long time. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that 20 grand that you spend on your Dodge Ram or your F-150, exactly. it's gone. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And that's hundred yeah. percent what they do too. Mate, it's the same. It's the same here when people get like our equivalent of the VA payout. Like no one spends that on their injuries. They they buy a new car, they put it on the deposit for a house, and it's gone. I, that's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So you've you've um, got your commission as a second lieutenant. Sorry, second lieutenant, as you would call it, in the army. What year is that? And then what's your first posting? 2005. Uh, yep. I graduated in June of 2005 and I was stationed at Fort Bragg. Um, and embarrassing, I'm about to call myself out, but you know, at the time I wasn't in the best shape of my life. Uh, so obviously, and at the time I, I was going to an aviation brigade uh, within the 82nd and that aviation brigade was coming off of jump status, but uh, they still wanted me to go to jump school. And within the first week, I got injured and as an officer, if you get injured, they don't recycle you, they send you back to your unit and then it's up to your unit to send you back to jump school. Whereas if you're enlisted and you get injured, they'll keep you there, recycle you, let you get fixed up and then put you back through the course. Um, so as I went back to my unit and was no longer injured, which was really just injury because I wasn't in proper shape, if I'm being honest, um, the unit, the, the aviation brigade went off of jump status. So there was no reason for me to go back to jump school. So I don't, I actually have a tattoo that says regret nothing. Um, I really try to not live my life with any regrets, but if I could change one thing, it would be going back through jump school. Interesting. Yeah, because I, um, I had a conversation recently uh, to someone that was posted to Fort Bragg to the 82nd. And um, I didn't, didn't realize that everyone on that base like it's a, it's an airborne brigade or whatever it is. The whole base is airborne. Except for the aviation brigade. The the aviation brigade went off. Well, now I, t I say that this was 2005. So it could have changed since then. But when I was there, that's the aviation brigade went off of jump status. And they were the only oh, okay. ones within, within the 82nd that were not. Yeah. Aviation too. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah. How I wound up in an aviation brigade, I have no idea. <laughs> well, because you were logistics, right? Uh, sorry, you were like transportation logistics, right? I mean, all of those all of those units need logistics. Yeah, broken helicopters need fixing, and parts need to get moved around. Yeah, bullets don't fly without supply. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um. 
So what's that like then being with the 82nd and you've obviously got the CAG guys in their little compound as well. Is that an interesting base to be on? It's awesome. It really is. There's so much tradition. Um, you know, if you're into that sort of thing, um, so much camaraderie, it's, it's really cool. It's different than, so I was only ever in one other base in the army before I got out of the army, but just the difference in those two units, um, the atmosphere, it's night and day. It really is. Um, at, at the time I was, you know, young and dumb and didn't really appreciate being there and being a part of it. But I look back on it now and uh, I'd, I'd go back in a heartbeat. It was, it was really awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Cause I got a couple of mates that were in Bragg at about that time. So um, like Rick Hogg and uh, a couple of guys like that. So, um, so your first deployment, take me through, take me through that. How was that? Um, first deployment was to Iraq in 2006. Um, pretty low key for the most part. Um, you know, we being an aviation brigade didn't run a ton of convoys. Um, we did some, uh, we were, we didn't run them. We were part of them. Um, and the cool part about that was being in an aviation brigade. The, the standing order was that if any of our folks from, um, our, our unit were, in the convoy, we had air support, no questions asked, which was not something that a lot of convoys got back then. So yeah, yeah that was, it was pretty badass, like pretty good feeling when you're, you know, riding down the road and there's a 58, like hovering right over your head. You're like, okay, I think, I think we're good. Right. Um, not, not much to worry about. So, um, our unit was actually, um, our squadron was split up at three different bases. So uh, if you're familiar with Missoul, uh, we had one troop at Missoul. We had a troop in Talafar, which is where I spent the majority of my time. And then we had another troop down um, at Spiker, uh, which was you know further south. So a lot of my job was when aircraft would break, helping parts you know move back and forth between, between the three bases. Um, it meant I got to kind of fly around a lot and we did all of our flying um, in helicopters, which was pretty, pretty neat. Um, pretty neat experience. Some of the best sleeping I ever did in the back of a 47, uh, in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah. And were you working with a lot of contractors back then? Like the, the security contractors? Not nearly as much as my second deployment. Um, the only contractors really there. So we were on a really small base. Um, it was us and then a forward, um, forward reconnaissance unit. And there was a special forces unit on the other side that like we never, ever saw. Um, and so there really wasn't a ton of stuff. Um, you know, even the other bases like down at Spiker and stuff, like they had like the little stands for like green bean coffee and like the random fast food places and stuff. We didn't have any of that where we were. It was just, just us basically. Um, but when even Kuwait, like, so Kuwait was a, a, a pass through for us. Um, on our way there. And that was fairly built up. Well, I went back through Kuwait in 2014 um, and the changes even there were insane. So uh, lots of buildup in that time. Yeah. So do you like that small base living? Was that your jam or was it like a bit uncomfortable? Or You know, looking back on it, um, it was actually pretty awesome. I, I really did enjoy it. Kind of, I don't I don't really know how to explain it, but it was just, 
was like a simple way of life. You know, it was kind of just us out there, out there. So we didn't have much to worry about. Um, like I said, the only, no, the only third country nationals were like people who worked in, um, like did the cleaning and like emptying the toilet or the porta potties and that kind of stuff. Um, whereas going to Afghanistan 2014 was a, a whole different ball game. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Especially in Afghanistan. Uh, well, at least at that point, anyway, early on, I think it was pretty fucking rugged. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what was the, um, what was that like, like operationally, were you guys getting rocketed or were you getting, was there a lot of reports of like IEDs or what was the threat like? So where we were, it was fairly minimal. Um, going over to Missoula was a little bit busier. They had, um, they had some rocket attacks and stuff like that. Um, Spiker wasn't, wasn't so bad, but where we were, honestly, like I said, we were kind of in the middle of nowhere. It was, it was pretty quiet. Um, if Talifar was actually like one of the first cities that got turned back over to the Iraqis, um, when we started, started to pull out. So, uh, a good, a good place to be, um, you know, like I said, yeah. fairly, fairly low key, fairly quiet. Um, you know, obviously there, we had, we had incidents, um, you know, we had, somebody get killed we've had you know we had helicopters get shot down several um but where i was and that was more missoula than it was where i was in talifar yeah what's that like experiencing those sort of things on your first deployment pretty eye-opening or were you sort of you were expecting those things and mentally prepared um i don't think anything can mentally prepare you for that you know uh so I, I remember the exact moment when I found out that, that my friend was killed. Um, somebody else at that point, I saw him walking to his, we had, if you're familiar with the word chew, I don't know if you guys use that word or not. Um, containerized housing unit. Um, he was basically his room. He was coming out and he had all of his flight gear. He was a pilot. And I was like, what are you doing? You're not supposed to fly today. And I will never forget the look on his face. And he looked at me and he said, Matt got shot. I have to go. And I like, I literally just remember being in like, in shock. Like, is this, like, is this real? Like, is this actually happening? Is this actually real life? Is he actually saying these words? Um, it was very surreal. So at that point, my troop commander and I made our way up to the talk and uh, like listening to the radio traffic and watching my friends, including our, our squadron commander, um, get into helicopter helicopters and fly to where these guys were still actively involved in a gun battle is I can't explain it. I, I literally cannot explain that feeling. Yeah. So your friend, Matt, he was, was he part of a convoy and I imagine they were ambushed or something. What was the situation there? He was actually a pilot. Um, and he got hit by a sniper round while flying. Jeez. Literally through his helmet wow that through is the, unbelievable through the windshield of the aircraft and through his helmet and uh he was pilot so in the kiowas there's you know pilot and and the pilot in command and then the basically the co-pilot and he was pilot in command and the the guy who was flying with him like had the wherewithal actually landed the helicopter in front of the hospital um but i mean there was nothing nothing they could do for Matt. You know, he was, he was gone. Um, and I think for me, the most, 
fucked up part, sorry for saying that, but the most fucked up part was the guy who was flying with him, like they kept him in country. And I'm sure they had their reasons for that, but like he would make like weird jokes about like, oh yeah, don't fly with me, you'll get killed. And I, I guess that was like his way of dealing with it, but I don't know. It was bothersome, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that dark humor can be a bit hit and miss sometimes. Probably from his perspective, maybe it was, you know, he was just processing it or he's trying to push it away and then you guys didn't appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, I had a very similar sort of thing happen at my workplace. You know, um, I, I used to sort of make these dark jokes about this particular thing and to process it and to deal with it. And I, you know, like almost came to blows with one particular dude over it. So, yeah, it's a funny, it's a funny space. Hey, we've all got that dark humor, but sometimes some people don't appreciate it. And everybody has to, you know, grieve, grieve in their own way and deal with things in their own way. But, you know, I, I was personally just surprised that they kept, kept him in country um, and allowed him to continue flying. I just, I, I can't imagine what that was like for him. I, I, I literally cannot imagine. Yeah. Um, our squadron commander um, was actually super close with that pilot that was killed. Um, and some years later, our squadron commander actually wound up committing suicide. Ah, Jesus. Because of this particular incident or the accumulative effects of deployments? And... Honestly, I don't know. Um, you know, once I, I left um, Fort Bragg, I, I lost touch with them altogether, but um, I obviously found out it, it had to be, gosh, four or five years later. So I imagine just cumulative of everything, but, you know, stereotypical, one of those guys that was like super like mentally and physically strong, like, you know, God, family, the whole nine yards, you would, you would never, ever, ever expect that from him. Yeah. Yeah. That's always a strange one. Hey, you, you can, you just can't pick it, right? You can't yeah. pick it. Man, that's so sad to hear, especially, you know, post-war and post-service when things were all over, people still fucking battled with that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, suicide is a big theme on my podcast. We talk about it a lot. It just happens to come up. I've got my own experiences with it. It just sort of comes up a, a lot. So, um, and I'm sorry you had to deal with it as well. Yeah. It, it sucks. There's no other way to say that. Mm, yeah. Well, look, let's, let's get past that deployment. I want to get to, um, I want to get to subsequent deployments and, and your change in service. So take us back to post that deployment. What's going on for you and your life and your career? What's the next move for you? Um, so after that deployment, um, was back at Fort Bragg for a little while. Uh, and then I transferred up to Fort Belvoir, Virginia, uh, to the first information operations command. Uh, I didn't really belong there. I did not, my, my MOS did not fit the, what was needed there. Um, but I was at the time, uh, my ex-husband, he was, um, he was getting moved up to the DC area. And so because we were married, I moved as well. So they just basically found me a job. Um, it was cool. It was an interesting thing to be a part of, but like, I was so out of my element. I didn't. I didn't have a clue. And at that point I was kind of like, okay, uh, I'm ready to get out now. Uh, and that's kind of when I made, I decided to make the jump over to the coast guard. Yeah. So <laughs> I, 
looking at your career, right, you've you've got a lot of interesting things that you've done, and, and I've never come across Coast Guard yet. Talk me through Coast Guard. Why Coast Guard? So it kind of just fit, right? My my degree being in marine transportation, my background being, you know, in with boats and shipping and all of that. It, Absolutely. It just, it just made sense. Um, Coast Guard headquarters was not far from where I was stationed in the Army, um, so plenty of opportunity. And at the time, I thought I didn't want to uh, deploy anymore. So I thought, okay, well, I'll go in the Coast Guard and I won't have to deploy. Worst case, if there's a hurricane, I'll go somewhere for a few weeks, right? Um, little, little did I know uh, that I would end up in Afghanistan, but I actually volunteered for that. So that's a whole nother story. Yes. And we're going to get to that. <laughs> um, but it, it was just a, kind of a logical, a logical step for me. I, I thought about, um, well, I had tried and had gotten a conditional offer of employment with the police department um, when I was getting out of the army and during my stress test, they found out I had tachycardia. It literally happened while I was doing my stress test. So the uh, police department was like, well, we can't hire you until you get this fixed. And I was like, well, I'm getting out of the army. I'm not going to have medical. How am I going to get this fixed? So that was a, a deciding factor as well. Um, stay on active duty, get the medical care, get it taken care of and then move on. So, sorry, can you say that condition again? Taca... Tachycardia? Um, just Tachycardia. A, yeah, um, kind of a, a, like a missed heartbeat. It's nothing like, nothing life-threatening or anything like that, but just something that they were not willing to bring me on until it was fixed. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Um, and then obviously you went, you decided not to go to the cops because of that reason, and then you went to Coast Guard. Did yep, you meet literally. Kevin Costner? <laughs> no, it's kind of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, literally one day, like it was like S September 1st, I was done in the army and like September 2nd, I commissioned into the Coast Guard. Oh, right. And then what, you had to go through your basic training again, go to the, the academy sort of thing or? Nope. So both services counted my academy time as like basic training. Um, so when I went into the army, I had to do what they call officer basic school. So it was, and it was transportation officer basic school. And then when I went into the coast guard, there's a program called direct commission officer. And that's specifically designed for folks who graduate from like the merchant marine Academy, like I did. And so it's basically four weeks of what we call like fork and knife school, right? Like just learning like how to be a proper coast guard officer, customs and courtesies, traditions, history, that kind of stuff yeah nothing nothing that i remember any of other than it was in connecticut and cold gotcha gotcha so what was your job in the coast guard then so initially i i wound up i found myself as an ensign which is so when i went into the coast guard they dropped me all the way back down um so i was an 01 again and i was at coast guard headquarters which is like the worst place that they could send a brand new officer um, I was running a, basically in, in an office doing kind of the same type of transportation stuff, only it was like echelons above my head. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Um, a lot of sitting around and staring at the computer and waiting for somebody to tell me what to do. Um, but had some cool experiences as well. Um, I got to play Admiral's Aid a couple times. 
which again is like pretty crazy as an 01. So got to sit in on um, some briefings with the Commandant of the Coast Guard, which at the time the Commandant of the Coast Guard was an absolute badass and I loved him. So that was kind of cool. Um, but you know, like here I am with butter bars on my shoulder, like baby 01 sitting in this room and it's like nothing but 06s and above, like captains and then like the Commandant's there and you're just like, what am I doing here? Like how, literally, how did I get in this room? <laughs> so what does the Coast Guard, Coast Guard, Coast Guard do? What's, what's their role? Well, it depends. So you have like search and rescue missions. You have like the icebreakers um, who are, um, you know, like in the cold parts of the world. Um, I would say search and rescue is like, the biggest thing that everybody's going to know the coast guard for that and like drug interdiction and that's a lot of what the boats do um is the drug interdiction um so i was also stationed when i went into the reserves i was stationed at um two what they call sectors um which i don't know not even can't even explain what a sector does because a sector in the reserves doesn't do a whole lot if i'm being honest um a lot of just augmenting active duty and preparing being prepared to go if something happens so obviously the coast guard does a lot like with all the natural disasters um you know they have folks down at the southern border um so they do a lot of augmenting um especially within the department of homeland security and stuff like that so as a reservist your job is to always be ready to go um so a lot of what we would do on our drill weekends is just prepare to go if that makes sense yeah. Um, make sure you're always, you know, in the green, like your medical's up to date, um, all of your paperwork, you know, your um, SGLI, all that stuff is like up to date, all of whatever certifications you need are up to date. Um, if you are in like a, a law enforcement um, role that you do your, you know, biannual um, firearms and stuff like that. So lots of just getting ready. Um, and I'll be honest, as, as a Coast Guard Reservist weekends, at a sector could be kind of boring. Okay. Because the only uh, real like reference I've got with the Coast Guard is, uh, I keep calling it Coast Guard. I think it's because their earphones like cut out my voice a bit, so I sound weird. Only reference I've got for the Coast Guard is uh, that movie with Kevin Costner and um, what's his name? The um, Ashton Kusher. Ashton Kusher. Kusher, Kusher. Uh, when they take the piss out of him on The Simpsons or something. And then there's that footage of those dudes like banging on the roof of that submarine, like interdicting that submarine in American waters. That's it. Is that kind so, of... <laughs> so honestly, the, the guys who do like the rescue swimmers, um, yeah. like from the movie, like that is the, and not, anybody who listens may argue, but literally that, that school is the hardest school in all of the military. It has the, the highest attrition rate. Um, and what those guys go through is unreal, but you got to think about what they're doing. Like, yeah, Navy SEALs are badass and they do all kinds of really cool shit, but what those rescue swimmers do, like jumping out of a helicopter into basically like a hurricane on the water is, is unreal. They, they will forever have my utmost respect and I, they are absolute badasses. Um, the drug runners and stuff, the guys like out there interdicting, like the, the guys bringing in smuggling drugs, like, yeah, that's really cool and all. However, like. They don't just, it's not like you're out there like as a patrol officer and a police officer, like, oh, look, here's a car. I'm going to stop it. Oh, wow. I found a bunch of drugs, right? Like these guys are getting intel, like, oh, there's going to be this boat coming this way. 
we're going to intercept it. So it's cool. Don't get me wrong. But the other stuff to me is, is way cooler. Yeah. Yeah. It's always a funny one. Hey, like I think people confuse the cool stuff with the, like they get wrapped around the axles with like the attrition rate. And then there's the, the cool stuff that you do. And so you're right. Like the seals do a heap of cool stuff and they've got a fucking hectic little course going on the, the buds and whatnot. But like in Australia, for example, um, like our dog squad, for example, has like, you know, the, because of the size of the state police and then the, the size of the dog squad, the attrition rate is massive. And same as the fire brigade, like you'll, it's, you know, like 5,000 people apply and like a hundred will get accepted, for example. So when you talk attrition rates, it's some of those obscure little departments that you don't hear a lot about that have the biggest attrition rates, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's super interesting. So during your time in, in the, in the Coast Guard Reserve, so um, you, I'm just looking at your notes here. So you spent a couple of years mucking around the active reserves and then you've gone back. Sorry. Then you've gone to the cops in 2011. What else were you doing when you're in the Coast Guard Reserve? So so I was active duty in the Coast Guard for two years, and then I went into the reserves. Um, when I went into the reserves is when I got back onto the or back or got into the police department, same police department that was going to hire me prior um, oh, in Virginia. Um, and in 2013, um, I saw the Coast Guard does stuff that they call them solicitations. It's basically like, hey, we've got this opening. We need somebody to fill it. Um, and they send it out to all the reservists and they give you the option of like applying. Um, there was a mission in Afghanistan um, and literally they, they brag about this. So they tell you less than one half of 1% of the entire Coast Guard has ever completed, have, has ever participated in this mission. Um, and they were soliciting for it. Um, and I applied and it became, it was between me and one other officer and the only reason I got it over him was because of my time in the army and the mission specifically was working with the army. Um, so I guess I kind of, I kind of got lucky, um, in, in beating him out for that. And so 2014, I spent the majority of the year, um, over in Afghanistan. But so from 2011, you, are you an active police officer from 2011? Yep. And so I still, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go, go ahead, go ahead. Yep, so I still was in 2013 when I applied, um, but because you get orders, like I, even though I volunteered to go on that mission, I still get what Title title, um, title 14 orders, which basically says like you are being recalled to active duty. So your employer, no matter who they are in the United States, has to hold your job for you while you're gone. Okay, all right. So there's a couple of things to unpack here. You're still part of the Coast Guard Reserve. You're in the police department and then you're deploying into Afghanistan 2014. Um, take, <laughs> I'm trying to decide which one to unpack first. Take me through police college and then going on the beat. What's your, just to say from 2011 to 2014, what's your time like in the cops? What sort of things are you doing, the jobs are you seeing? Um, so I worked in Arlington, Virginia, um, which is just outside of DC. So there, there's parts of Arlington that are super, super wealthy, like where you have diplomats and, 
um, congressmen and senators and all of that living there because it's literally, it borders DC. Um, so really cool place to work. The South side of the County has some kind of shitty areas. So we kind of had, um, a wide array of, of stuff, not a, a ton of uber, uber violent crime, but we had our fair share of things. Right. Um, but absolute amazing agency to work for. I loved it. I really did. Um, I had one complaint about working there and it's the silliest thing ever. Um, but there was no parking for us. Um, they, the police department didn't have a parking lot, but it was a pay parking lot. So there was no place like when I went to work, I didn't live in the County. So I didn't have a take home car. So I had to pay to park, to go to work. Jeez. Um, that was like my only complaint. Um, but otherwise I loved it. The Academy that we went through was six months. Um, and I'm sure there are academies that are more difficult, but ha compared to what I did down here in South Carolina, like significantly more difficult, significantly more detailed, um, just all around better as far as the education um, in the policing world. Yeah. So you've obviously, you've had experience in the Coast Guard, fucking Coast Guard. I keep saying the card, the Coast Guard. I'm not gonna edit that out by the way. You've got experience in the Coast Guard and the military, including deploying, what's that like going to the cops and then going to like your first live jobs? What's that like? Um, fun. It was, it was so fun. I don't, I don't know how else to explain it. Um, even like the silly calls that we would get, um, I believe it or not, we dealt with a lot of, um, mental health issues in that area because a lot of people, the homeless population in DC um, that have mental health issues would come over the bridge into Arlington because the mental health care was so good where we were. So we dealt with a lot of that, but even dealing with that, like I just worked with a really great group of people um, on a really great shift. I had awesome supervisors and and I really did enjoy, enjoy it a lot. I learned a ton. I had great field training officers. Um, I'm still, I'm still close with uh, two of them to this day. Um, I know if I called them, you know, if I needed anything, they would, they would be there for me. So, um, just fun, just like really fun. Like, you know, oh, every time. Sorry. No, sorry. No. You just, you, you, you just cut out there for a second. It's, um, oh. yeah, my recording stopped for some reason. It cut out for about 10 seconds. So, um, you were talking about the homeless population who move over the bridge because of their better mental health care and the sort of calls you guys were getting. Yeah. And, and where I was, the beat I worked, we dealt with a lot of that. We really did. Um, but even those calls, like it was still just a lot of fun. I, I was really blessed to be on a really great team, a really great squad. Um, I worked with some really great people. I had awesome field training officers who, um, you know, I tried to be like, when I became a field training officer, I wanted to be like them. Um, because what I saw after, uh, after being there and going from Virginia down to South Carolina, like the quality wasn't there. Like when we went through field training, like these guys tested us. Like it wasn't just, oh, we're checking the box. My academy class, when I started, we started with 22 people, six month academy, we graduated 11. And then seven of us actually made it through field training. Wow. So, and, and they weren't, the department was not afraid to say, you know, thanks for coming out. You're not a good fit for this. And to this day, and I don't know if it's still like that there, cause I've been gone for a long time. Um, but I had the utmost respect for them for doing that. And not just because nowadays, you know, everything's kinder, gentler and people are getting pushed through who, who shouldn't be pushed through quite frankly. Yeah. 
So when you see things like this defunded police movement and all this crazy shit going on over there, does it anger you or does it give some sort of, do you get some sort of response out of that or are you just like, yeah, not there anymore, not, not, my, not my problem? No, 100%, 100% response. And, you know, a lot of that was the catalyst for me thinking it was time to make a career move. You know, back in, back at the time of, of 9-11 and, you know, early on in OIF, OEF, the, the patriotism, the respect for military and first responders and, and all of that was, um, it was through the roof, right? Like we could do, if you were in uniform, you could kind of do no wrong. You had all the support in the world. Everybody loved you. And so being in the career, these careers long enough and seeing that, that paradigm shift so much, it became, it became really hard to, to still put on either uniform and go do the things just because yeah. I knew, you know, you knew what it used to be like and what it could be like. Yeah. It's such a shame. Hey, it's such a shame that it pushes people, pushes people out like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you're probably the first person that's sort of spoken about it like that and, and then said, Hey, there's the right, I can see the writing on the wall. This is, you know, not a good place to be. Yeah. So um, what sort of what sort of what's the sort of violent extreme incidents that you're seeing as a as a police officer in that period? Um, I mean, kind of ran the gamut, you know, from um, where I was in Virginia. Like, we actually had a decent amount of bank robberies, um, and again, I think that's because a lot of the area is pretty wealthy. Um, at least I, I think I think that's why. Um, you know, we would get the occasional shooting, lots of shoplifting. A lot of, again, kind of like the mental health, a lot of what we dealt with was stuff that came over from DC um, into into the Arlington area. Down here in South Carolina, um, kind of the same, um, much more mental health issues um, up in, in Virginia. I mean, I, I felt like that was what I dealt with like every other call. Um, but down, down here in South Carolina, um, you know, the, the same kind of thing, like, um, burglaries, um, some shootings, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Any particular incidents that stand out for you? Oh goodness. <laughs> uh, yes, but no, at the same time, you know what I mean? Like, yes, but I, you, it's funny. You kind of block a lot of them out. Um, I think probably one of my, my personal favorite memories with my dog, um, was um, a robbery that had just occurred at a convenience store um, and we tracked and I tracked to a parking lot and we got like literally to a parking space and, and along the way we're like finding money and, and other evidence and stuff. We got to this parking spot and my dog had its nose to the ground the entire time. He picked up his head and kind of looked around and it was in a, a shitty apartment complex and somebody like poked their head out the door and they were like four guys with masks on just got into a car and drove away. And even though we didn't find the guys that day, like for me, that was a badass feeling because my dog quite literally took me to the spot that they were. Yeah, awesome. Oh, so they they were in the car. Sorry, they ran from you. You tracked them to where the car was, but they'd taken off like a minute or two before, right? Yep. Yep. Wow. Cool. 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 All right. Well, let's let's dial back before we get to the um, before we get to you going to canine. Um, have you got a lot of experience with the dogs in this? So from the 2011 period onwards, are you seeing the dogs used a lot? Is this something that's interesting to you? 
Um, I didn't see a lot of dog usage. I had taken uh, a pet obedience course in 2008 and started just kind of dabbling in training dogs just for fun. Mostly my own dogs, my friend helping with friends' dogs and stuff like that. Never anything for money. Um, canine was always one of those careers that you think is like totally unattainable. And you're like, oh man, I would love to do that, but it'll never happen. And in Virginia, if I had stayed in Virginia, it wouldn't have. Um, the requirements were you had to live in the county, you had to have a fenced in yard. And if you know the area of Arlington, Virginia, like you have to be very wealthy to be able to live in the county. I lived 30 miles outside the county. Um, and so I would have never, never qualified for canine. Plus it was a, the type of unit where somebody quite literally had to die or retire to get an opening. Um, so I, I, can't, I, I, the thought was never even in my mind. And then coming down here to South Carolina, um, my first six months of being at the department, a spot opened up and I was like, eh, I'll apply. At least they'll know I'm interested. And when I got selected, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> Uh oh <laughs> <laughs> oh cool so you didn't have any like exposure to the to the dogs before you applied nope awesome all right so i'm gonna i'm gonna go on to your 2014 afghanistan deployment just for a minute before we get into the canine stuff um can you just you talked about it briefly before. You said that there was only this sort of sliver of a, of a percent of people who've done this particular mission. What's that mission um, and, and what did you do overseas? It sounds really cool. Um, the, the team is called RAID, uh, Redeployment Assistance Inspection Detachment. So basically our responsibility was to help all of the units getting ready to come back home, get their stuff packed up and seaworthy to get put on, on ships and come back. Um, so we were inspecting things like hazmat and the seaworthiness of the containers and stuff like that. So although it wasn't like a super badass mission, we weren't doing anything, um, you know, super high speed. The guys, or I say guys, um, the units liked seeing us because seeing us meant that they were getting ready to come home. And did they, did they not know they were going home previous to seeing you? Yeah, they, they did. But, you know, us being there, like kind of, solidified like this is actually happening we're actually packing up our stuff because you know the military you know it's plan 12 times frago 18 you know getting ready yeah. so once we were actually there and things were getting put into containers and stuff like that i think it became a little bit more real for everybody yeah okay no that's good that must be a nice feeling to have an effect on those people like that yeah it really did and being there you're asking about third country nationals and and um, contractors. And that was probably what we worked with the most over there. Um, I felt like for every one of us, like, you know, military, there was probably two contractors or third country nationals. I felt like anyway. Yeah. And what about the threat at that time, 2014? Cause I was there 2012. Um, and there was, there was a lot going on. What was the threat like in 2014 for you specifically? Um, so it depended on where you were. Um, again, I had, I was split base operations. So, um, I had a small detachment in the far North at Mazari Sharif, and it was super quiet for those guys up there. Like they didn't hear or see anything. Um, I had a small detachment down at camp Leatherneck with the Marines. Um, I think maybe they had like one rocket attack while we were there. Um, so again, mostly quiet. And then I had folks, um, I had a team back in Kuwait, obviously they were good. And then I had guys uh, 
in Kandahar, which is where I was based out of, and Bagram. Um, and Bagram probably took the worst of it. Um, have you you've been to Bagram? I assume. Nope. Okay, so Bagram is like a a fishbowl, right? Like, so very easy to like lob mortars over the fence, kind of thing. Um, so you know, rocket attacks were fairly common there. Um, I felt like in Kandahar we got a lot of people breaching the wire. Um, that seemed to be more of it there than we had some rocket attacks, but but more people breaching the wire. Whereas Bagram was definitely rocket attacks. So the guys breaching the wire were they actual bad guys, or they were just like some local retard that just like cut his way through a fence? You know, I'll be honest, I don't really know because it typically happened in the middle of the night, so the alarms would go off and you're like trying to sleep and you're like, I don't give a fuck. I'm just trying to sleep. <laughs> yeah. I'm done. I come in my room, I'll shoot them, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Yeah. You just, you definitely develop that apathy towards some of those incidents that maybe somebody else might be like, Oh my God, the base is being invaded. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I distinctly remember like having rocket in Bagram rocket attacks while we were eating lunch and I had, it was like chicken nugget day. And I was like, I'm not missing these chicken nuggets. So I'm like under the table, like reaching around, like, grabbing <laughs> nuggets, you know, like I'm not, these are not going to get cold. As if like a fucking table is going to protect you anyway. Right. I know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so was that about the extent of what you guys were doing over there? That was your mission. You fulfilled that and then you sort of came home. Yep. Um, that was, that was it. We traveled to some of the outlying fobs as like, cause at that, at that time, a lot of these like smaller outlying fobs were closing down. So we got to travel yep. to some of those, which was kind of cool. Um, again, those guys were kind of living like I did when I was in Iraq, like none of the built up stuff or any of that, that kind of thing. So. Do you go out to any um, SF bases like with um, Dev or CAG or Green Berets or anything like that? Mm -mm. Did never got the opportunity while we were there. Yeah, okay. And I, I think they're they're mostly in places like Kandahar and stuff anyway. So, um, so 2015, right? You leave your Arlington department and then you go. That's when you go to South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Talk me through changing departments. So I'll be honest, I, I wouldn't have, um, I would have stayed in Arlington. Um, my now husband, uh, at, at the time we were just dating and he thought about moving up to Virginia and he was up there for like a month and hated it and couldn't find, couldn't find a good, like a, a decent job, um, making what he was making down here. So he was like, you want to move to South Carolina? And I was like, sure, I can be a cop anywhere. Right. Um, I had nothing holding me in Virginia at that point. My family is still in, in New Jersey. So, um, he asked and I was like, sure, I'll move down. Um, I, I briefly thought I was going to get out of law enforcement, uh, for a couple months. I tried my hand at real estate basically Ooh. did not, it just didn't go well. We'll just leave it at that. Um, no, no, tell me, <laughs> I want to hear about it. <laughs> there's really not much. I just like. I couldn't sell anything. I was a friend actually the person we bought our house from, she was kind enough to like, kind of take me under her wing and try and help me. But I just, I don't have the personality for that. Um, so it, it just, it didn't, it never took off. Um, and there was a couple exactly because it was, oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, no. Um, I don't, I honestly don't know what, what the reason behind it was. Um, I, I just think it's my personality and, and dealing with people. Um, I'm not, very good at faking the funk. 
so the nice part about dog training is I can tell people uh, how blatantly honest I'm going to be like, hey, your dog's a hot mess. Um, but I say it nicely, uh, but I can still tell them the truth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you don't strike me as the sort of person that could go into that sleazy real estate sort of space and which is which is a compliment by the way <laughs> yeah yeah uh, no I, i'm the same i don't think i could i could go into that sort of space it's just not me like if i can't talk to someone like this i'm like matt yep. don't want to do it can't fake it can't pretend to yep. use big words and, and put a suit on and slick back my hair and no nah, no way that yeah. and you know the attire too right like i'm used to wearing a uniform so even though i don't have uniform now like i have business shirts right so i i still don't have to think about what to wear <laughs> yeah me, me too the only thing i have to think about is do i want to wear origin canine or do i want to wear some cool shirt that somebody's given me to, to rep their business that's all i have to think about right yeah um all right so talk me through there like moving over to the, to the new department and what was better what was worse and then getting into canine that's what i want to hear about um, so when I got hired down here, um, the, the man who was the chief was, he's incredible. Um, I love him. Uh, if he decided to come out of retirement and, and become chief somewhere, I would probably consider going back to law enforcement. He was just a great guy. Um, I was actually going to get hired by another department and excuse me. Um, they had given me a conditional offer, put me through all of like, you know, your excuse me, psychological and medical testing and all that stuff. Um, and I went to the interview at this department with the intention of telling them, Hey, thanks, but I got hired elsewhere. And he, the chief, like I had my interview with like the captains and stuff and they were like, hold on. And I told them like, thank you for this opportunity, but I'm going to, I got hired here and they like, hold on a second. And I went in and sat down with the chief personally. And, um, I walked out of there and I was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. Like, it just felt right it felt comfortable um and I, I just loved his his whole aura that's so good that's the that's the opposite of what i hear a lot of the time about shit leadership pushing people away people hating on the culture and that's so good that you, you had a boss that like inspired you like that did he continue to inspire you like that he wound up retiring probably, what is it, a little over a year after I got hired. Um, yep. And his replacement was okay. Um, I'm, I'm still close with him and his wife to this day. They, uh, their dogs stay with me regularly. Um, I like him as that chief. I liked him as a person, very much as a person. Um, he was much more liberal as a chief. Um, so it was, it was some changes that, you know, changes is always hard. Um, but not, not terrible. Like I said, I'm still, I'm still close with him and his wife to this day. So, um, nothing like that. Just, just different. Um, you know, the, yeah. the atmosphere kind of changed. Um, it didn't feel as homey, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think I know what you mean. Yeah. Like the, the culture maybe wasn't as homogenous and yeah. Okay. I get it. Yeah, interesting. So talk me, talk to me about Canine. Why did you apply? I applied because the spot came open and I thought there's no chance in hell I'll get it. Um, so because I had gone through an academy in Virginia, I only had to go through what they call like a transition academy down here, which is was six weeks of legal and that's it. 
Um, and I was actually in my last week of that, of that transition Academy when the spot came out and I told my husband, I was like, well, I'm going to apply, you know, at least they'll know I'm interested. So when another spot comes open, you know, maybe I can get that one once I've been here longer. Um, but you know, between 2008 and, and that time I was still training dogs and learning stuff and nothing, I'm not doing anything crazy. Again, just friends, dogs, family dogs, pet dogs, that kind of thing. Um, but giving myself some knowledge base. Um, and I think that's kind of what put me over the top compared to the other candidates at the time was just because I had that little bit of knowledge and experience. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Because a lot of people ask me, they reach out on social media and say, how could I make myself more attractive to canine and, and get in? And, and my answer is usually like just, you know, be a good cop and, and be a good soldier or whatever and do be good at what you do now. But um, it's interesting that you think that, uh, or that you say that the, the training helped you get your position. That's interesting. It's just my opinion. Cause you know, thinking back to, to the two other people who had applied at the time, um, one of them is now a canine handler at another agency and, and, and I love her to death. Um, and the other one wound up not, um, ever getting deciding to do canine and he does, um, collision reconstruction. Uh, and he's like a whiz at that stuff. Um, they're, they both are amazing cops, both of them. Like I would follow either one of them into anything at any time. So it's the only thing I can think that gave me the edge. Yeah. No, I like that. I think that's, I think I I probably will start telling people, Hey, maybe maybe there is a bit of credence to the idea of getting a bit of extra education, um, to make you look a little bit better, a bit more committed. So yeah, I think the key to that is yes, get that little bit of knowledge, but also don't shut yourself down to learning. So go in with an open mind of, okay, I have some knowledge base, but I obviously don't know everything. And don't try to be that guy who's like, well, I went here and they said this, um, you know, be willing to still learn their, the other, somebody else's ways and techniques and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Especially going into the department, like they're going to have their own ways of training and you can't be like, oh, well, uh, uh, Lieberg video I'd watched and we did this. <laughs> I'd be like, yes, oh, cool story, exactly. bro. Exactly. So what was the training like then in terms of methodology for you as a handler? Um, so the, the place I went through handler school um, back in the day was really awesome. Um, when we went through less awesome. So I did not, I learned a lot about tracking. Uh, the the trainer that was there at the time that taught me tracking taught me a lot. And maybe because I got the best instruction there, it became like my favorite thing to this day. It is my favorite thing to do, you know, as often as I can, I get my husband to lay a track for, um, my guy, my retired guy. Um, just it's hands down my favorite. Um, the other stuff, I just knowing what I know now, back then I thought it was great. Right. But knowing what I know now, I know that it was not great. Um, allowed me to create a lot of really bad habits in my dog. Um, things I wish I, I could change, but to this day, <laughs> you know, as much as I try, I can't break, you know, I don't try very hard anymore because he's almost nine. Um, but things that I still can't break, just bad habits that we were, we were allowed to develop over time. 
And are you talking about like that compulsive way of training versus say more of a motivational type of training? What, what are you sort of talking about there? Not even that so much as just like lack of, lack of good instruction, um, allowing him to be lackadaisical and lazy in his searching, um, you know, me not having good timing on my rewards, him becoming, you know, reliant on me or looking back at me before paying for like dope hides and stuff like that, just because my timing was off and nobody ever corrected that. Um, and yeah, at the time okay. I, I didn't know any better. Oh, okay. Cause yeah, sometimes I speak to people and I talk about some of the methodology they used in the early parts of their career was, you know, very check chain heavy and compulsive based, but it doesn't sound like you were doing it that way. Right? No, not, not, where we went to school. Now, when we came back from school, we're in the Southern United States is very much good old boy network, right? And uh, everybody who does it has learned from the person who did it before them. And we do it this way because we've been doing it this way for a hundred years. Um, so there is still agencies in the area that do partake in that methodology and that are very heavy handed. Um, if you even try to throw out the word food and training, like you might as well slit your wrists <laughs> um, you know, that, that kind of thing, um, turn up the e-collar all the way, you know, the, the Garmin 550 to a seven high and, and fry the dog in the submission. And yeah. Um, again, I think that was part of my demise. Um, I took over as canine unit supervisor in 2017. And yep. when I was given that job, I took it very seriously. Um, I, literally like that is what changed my life. That is when dogs and canine became my life. I knew that I didn't know as much as I needed to know. And I quite literally spent every waking moment learning and training and trying to better myself so that I could better the unit. Um, and I got to a point where I knew more than a lot of people, especially command staff. And when I stopped just, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, and started pushing back and saying, no, but that was not received very well. Yeah. So before we get to your time as like the, the capability manager or the, the, the canine manager, what sort of jobs are you doing as a handler and how do they sort of play out? Because I know that when we spoke previous to the podcast and, and everyone always does it. Oh, I'm, I'm not that interesting. And you don't want to speak to me. You were like, Oh, I didn't get any bites. And I was like, I don't care. <laughs> um, what, what sort of jobs are you doing? Like, because you said a lot of people would give up, right? Talk me through what, what's a typical job with, with, with you when you first started. So when I first got on the unit, they were very big on, um, traffic stops. Like they wanted us out there being proactive, making traffic stops, arresting bad guys, getting dope off the streets. Um, you know, it drugs, guns, and wanted people, drugs, guns, and wanted people. That's, that's what they wanted us doing. So the majority of my time was spent making traffic stops, um, and looking for all of those things. And if we weren't doing that, or if we weren't actively, you know, engaged in a traffic stop, just backing up the patrol officers and being available if a canine was needed for whatever, whether it be, you know, a free air sniff of a vehicle or a track or what insert, whatever here. 
Okay. So what do you do when you pull someone over? Do you do you rip the dog out and straight away go, hey man, I'm about to search your car for some drugs and stuff, or do you sort of you assess the situation and then go, maybe this warrants a, a further look? Yep. You know, so just like anything, there's laws and stuff that that govern what we can and can't do with that kind of thing. So you have to establish, you know, your reasonable suspicion to think that there's more going on than what they're saying, um, and then then the dog can come out. But you know, you have to go through and you have to use your verbal judo to get through and figure out is something is there not something okay all right and are you doing a lot of this based on like number plate stuff and and criminal history checks and those type of things um you mean like the traffic stops like yeah yeah traffic traffic stops um so honestly for me personally like my traffic stops were always totally random obviously i would we would kind of hang out in the areas where we know we knew the neighborhoods were not the best and we would, you know, stop a lot of cars coming out of those neighborhoods or or whatever. But for me personally, like I, I get bored pretty easily. So I'm not good. I'm not I was never one of those cops that could like sit in one spot and just watch. I was much more drive up and down, check the areas and wait for something in those areas, but not just sit still and watch, if that makes sense. Yeah. So was that like your command directive? They were like traffic stop, traffic stop, traffic stop. Yep. What about um, like tracking offenders? Was that maybe not higher on like the command priority list, but is that something that was was common in terms of what you saw? Like actual physical tracking, like getting the dog out and tracking. Yeah, yeah. Like bad guy was last seen here, ran that way, and then you track. So hundred percent, like command would want a dog there for any kind of situation like that, where somebody can be, could be tracked. Um, gotcha. So yeah, we always, we always had to be available for that kind of thing. And uh, how many of those sort of jobs did you get? How many? Um, oof. I couldn't even hazard a guess, to be honest with you. Um, All the time, just re- fairly regular, I imagine. Fairly regular. Yeah. Um, because you know, it's, it's like a variety of things. It's not always like the crime in progress, but like somebody stopped a car and somebody ran from the traffic stop or something like that. So things would pop up like kind of like that. Oh, okay. So can you run us through one of those scenarios? Cause you, like I said, you, you said before the podcast, um, you, you, you never sort of got to that bite, but talk us through tracking some of the offenders and, and what does that look like at the end of the track? So honestly, tracking is super fun. I love it. It's still my favorite, but it's, it can be super difficult because you have to rely a lot on the other officers that you're working with to help. Um, if they can't set a perimeter, um, there's nothing holding that person there and they're just going to keep going and they're going to keep going till they eventually get away from you. Also nowadays guys aren't committing crimes and then just running right. Or bedding down, they're committing crimes and then getting in a car and driving away. Um, yeah. Well, you know, another situation I had, I actually got called in in the middle of the night, another convenience store had gotten robbed, um, put the dog on the ground. He literally tracked to the end of the parking lot and stopped. Well, once we finally got a manager in and got security cameras pulled up, guy left the front door, went to a car, got in a car and left. And by the time we did all that, he had committed another robbery, like 20 miles from here. Oh, right. Is this the same one you were talking about? previously or was that a different one with the bank robbers? Different one. Different one. Uh, okay. 
All right. And so talk me through, you said that a lot of people would give up. Talk me through what does, what's that look like when you, you find someone and the dogs that you're in that aren't at the end of the lead, are they just like, ah, oh, fuck, I'll give up? Yeah. So one of the, the most distinct ones I can remember, um, it was a wanted subject and um, inside a, a, a trailer, gosh, couldn't think of the word, um, a small trailer. And you know, we called everybody out of the house. My, my Lieutenant, this was his idea. I love, he was since retired, but he was awesome. We used to do all kinds of fun stuff together. Um, and we, yep. Everybody's out of the house. Nobody's in there. Okay. Well, we're going to send the dog in to go look. Um, I cut him off leash, sent him in. Um, and he got to a door and I, so our dogs, the way we train them, like if there's a closed door, they're trained to bark at the door to, as an alert to us. Um, so he got to the door. I heard him take a really big breath in. And before he could even start barking, I heard somebody screaming behind the door. Don't open the door. Don't open the door. I was like, damn it. <laughs> so what do you do that? You move inside, you clip him up yep. and then go. Yep. So I had, and- I had two other officers with me. So we, it, we essentially cleared our way to that door, but it was a trailer. So as you can imagine, not a lot of space to clear because um, it was small. Um, and we got to the door. I pulled the dog back. Um, we gave him commands to open the door and, and come out and stuff like that. And he was, he was taken into custody, but you know, had the dog right there. That way, if things went South, at least we still had that option. And how often does that happen for you that you, you'd go do a track or a search and, and then you would like you encounter, you would encounter somebody that would then give up. For me, if, if we got to a point where there was somebody always, um, I, I find that these guys that do these things are more afraid of getting bit by a dog than they are of getting shot. Um, (laughs) I get it. I've been bit. It hurts. So, um, I understand that, but yeah, like there's, so I started at this agency in 2015 um, it's now 2023. There have been two bites at the agency since that time. Um, the first one happened in like 2016 and probably shouldn't have happened, but it worked out in the end. Um, and the second one, um, was right before I left actually, uh, it was one of my buddies and he did everything textbook, like amazing, amazing job by him and the dog. Um, the guy, and I forget what they found out he was on, but he was definitely on something because this dog is a beast and had him by the leg and this guy wasn't even like acknowledging the pain. Shit. Okay. Yeah. Is that like an ice induced firma sort of thing? Yeah. I don't, I know they drug tested him. I don't remember what he was on, but I, I do know he was on something. Yeah. Oh, shit. But do you consider that a win, though? So for you personally, like, yeah, you, you said you didn't get to sort of bite anyone, but do you consider that a win when you track them, find them, they give up, and they get taken into custody? Absolutely. Do you – it's obviously a bit – it might be a bit of a sore point for you because you brought it up, but do, do you – do you did you want to get bites or are you just happy with the way things turned out? You know, it's one of those things that's, again, it's a double-edged sword because – there's so much liability and paperwork and everything else that comes with a live bite. Um, and there's the potential for things to go really, really well, but also the potential for things to go really, really bad. So, um, 
I wish we had more successful tracks, meaning I wish we found more people on tracks. But again, it kind of goes back to what I was saying. It's really difficult in today's world to have successful tracks, especially in a smaller agency where you don't have as many officers that can set up a, a really solid perimeter and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, like I'm, I'm honestly, would it, would it be cool to have that feather in my cap, have that feather in his cap? Yeah, it would have been cool, but I'm not bitter about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm with you too, right? I think that would be really, like, it'd be it'd be in terms of like a, you know, adding it to your list of experiences in life and your job. Yeah, definitely, it's something you want to do. Um, but uh, yeah, I was just curious if that was like a bit of a sore point for you, or if you were pretty happy with your career and the way things have sort of panned out. So this is going to sound really cheesy, but you know, this dog literally changed my life. Um, I would not be doing any of the things I'm doing. I would not have had a quarter of the experiences that I've had in the last uh, six years, seven years uh, that we've been together. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a second of it. He is, he is my best friend. I spend more time with him. I have since I got him in March of 2016 than I have with my husband, honestly. <laughs> yeah. And what's your dog's name? Apart. I did not name him. He came to me with that name. Um, I just didn't change it. Apart, as in like rip it, rip apart. Yep. Is that the premise of that name to rip apart, or just no. apart? He came from overseas with that name, so. Oh, okay. So it might be some like weird Dutch thing, like apart no. or something. I don't know. Yeah, no talent. Yeah. Okay. No, that's strange. Where did he come from? He was originally bred in Slovakia, and then. Oh. Um, Sold to the Netherlands and from the Netherlands came to the States. Ah, right. Can you say what vendor? Uh, he, what vendor he came from? Yeah. Uh, Ventosa Kennels. Oh, okay. I don't know. I only know a handful. I was just curious to see if it was somebody that I knew. <laughs> but I'm not. Yeah, they're, they're in North Carolina too, not probably about an hour from the Bragg area. Okay, sweet. So, um, Talk me through ending your police career and then obviously a part has retired and he's chilling at home with you. Talk me through the transition into Ridgeside Canine. So I had actually gone out on FMLA. Like, I don't know if you guys have that. I'm sure you have something similar, but basically like a family medical type leave um, in March of 2021. Um, I thought that there was like something physically wrong with me and the doctor was sending me for a bunch of tests and it turned out to just be sheer exhaustion. Like I had literally, I was doing the police department. I was on our SWAT team, um, doing canine, doing the reserves and training dogs on the side. And I had literally just worn myself out like completely. So I was on FMLA, um, taking some time, the business was obviously building and growing at that point. So I made sure prior to leaving the police department that the business was in a good spot. I had clients booked out for a while before ever making the decision to, to finally leave the police department. And honestly, it was one of those things where like the hardest part was actually walking in and sitting down and looking at the chief. Like leaving didn't really bother me. It was having to go tell him that I was going to leave. That was difficult. And this was a, a, a new chief, not the one I mentioned previously. Yeah. So even a newer chief than the guy you're still in contact with. Yes, correct. 
Okay. All right. And so you just sort of got to that point where you were like, I've got to make a decision, my health or the job. And obviously it shows your health. Yeah. And, you know, again, like it had gotten to a point where I was starting to know more than, than some of the command staff as far as canine and, you know, best practices and training and stuff like that. And I was starting to push back a little bit and it didn't really sit well. So I was starting to not feel as comfortable in my position as I used to. Um, and there were some things that were said and I, I don't want to get into them because they're, it's not appropriate to discuss, um, that I was in those moments. I was like, I need to get the fuck out of here. Um, yeah, okay. and th those were kind of the start of, of the demise, so to speak. Um, so it was kind of, okay. it, there was build up to it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And like when you actually left, cause there's, there's never a perfect time to leave, right? When no. you left, were you happy with, with your decision? You were at pace with your career and the fact that you'd moved on? I really was, you know, I thought, I thought I would miss it. I really, we have what we call reserve officers down here. Um, and they're basically like part-time volunteers. They can have, depending on what, what, you know, what level they are, they can have like full arrest powers and, and, you know, work the road like a regular police officer. Um, and I really wanted to stay on as a reserve officer and just work with the canine unit because I know that, that I can help that unit. You know, um, I know I have the knowledge and, and ability to do so, but, um, it wasn't something that the new supervisor, the person who took my spot wanted. He felt like it would be confusing to the rest of the team because at one point I was the supervisor and he was a supervisor now. Um, so he didn't want that. So I said, as much as I didn't want to, I said, okay, well, I guess I'm just done altogether then. And uh, I made like a clean break and I really thought it would bother me. And it, it, it doesn't, I don't miss policing at all. I really don't, um, especially with the way the world is now. Um, I do Tuesdays was canine training day. I miss going to training. I miss, I, I, the team was a group of pretty hilarious guys. So I miss the, the Tuesdays and the joking, um, and the training dogs piece. And if they call me and they do, when they have questions, some of them still call me and ask me stuff. Um, and they all know that they can call me anytime and, and I'll be there. I'll answer questions. I'll hop in a suit. My husband will hop in the suit for them. Um, you know, whatever we need to do, we'll, we'll, we'll do. Um, but if they called me and said, Hey, will you come back as a reserve and work with the canine unit? I would, because that's, that's what I love to do. That's my passion. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, it's almost like once you make the decision to leave, that's, you know, there's a lot of peace in that. But I think the other thing is a lot of people think they're going to miss the job itself as opposed to what the job gives them. Yes. And, I, and, you know, personally, for me, coming from the military, like I hadn't deployed. So my last deployment was 2016. So I hadn't deployed in like three years by the time I got out. I actually didn't miss the deployment stuff. I missed the guys. I missed the, that's what you're talking about, talking shit and hanging out and the identity piece. But, you know, really, you can get that from other places and doing other things, right? Yeah, 100%. 100%. I, and I thought I would, I thought I would really miss it. I, I was the fear of, am I going to miss it? How am I going to feel was greater than anything. And then once I, like, I remember walking out, um, of, of the department from telling the chief and, um, 
a, a girl who's, she's a friend of mine. She also happens to be one of my trainers. She was with me. Um, she kind of came, like she waited in the parking lot and we were going to, to do dog stuff after. And uh, like, I just kind of came out with a smile on my face. Like just the weight of the world had been lifted <laughs> off my shoulders. Yeah. That must be a good feeling, right? So what you thought you were going to miss from the cops, is that what you get from Ridgeside now? 100%. Yeah. So moving into something that gives you what you had and what you were looking for, the camaraderies, the, the engagement, the identity makes it a lot easier to transition, right? It does. And and I do a lot of competition sports with um, protection sports with my personal dogs as well. So I still get to do like that fun stuff too, right? All the bitey stuff and stuff like that. Um, all of my dogs are trained in some form of detection. So I've got six dogs. I've got four on narcotics and two on explosives. So I still do all of the things, right? I, that that stuff never stops. So I still get my fulfillment there. Um, there's something really rewarding about working with pet dogs. Um, I actually sent a dog home today. It was probably one of, if not the hardest dogs I've ever trained. Um, six month old German Shepherd with anxiety like I've never seen before in in a puppy. Um, but and and me personally, I was not thrilled with the point that we reached in her training. But, you know, then you see the owner come in and the owner literally is saying to you, this is a different dog. And you're like, okay, well, I might not be thrilled with it, but I know that I've made their life and the dog's life better, even if it's not yeah. to my my standard. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely, it's, it's all about the impact you have, right? As opposed to like reaching some arbitrary points or, because um, you seem like an impact driven person, right? And that, that's, again, that, that's a compliment. So, um yeah, I like your, your mindset on that. Yeah, like there's, I've had, we've had a few dogs come through where it's like, we're the dog's last option. Like it's us or us or euthanasia um, and sure. getting to work through some of those issues and get these dogs to a point that they can, you know, with management still live in the home and, and be alive and, and all that stuff. It's, it's a pretty cool feeling. It really is. And then, you know, we build, you build your own like bond and family with these clients because let's face it like everybody loves their dog like they do their child nowadays so these dogs mean more to these people than anything and when we take them i mean we're taking their babies from them when we train them and so again you're you're building a lot of a, a big bond and a lot of trust and we've got i've got folks that i may have trained their dog two years ago and they still come out to group class or they still text me and give me updates and stuff like that and that's a really good feeling as well yeah, nice. So, Ridgeside Canine, uh, is that, did, was that started by Rich Hartman? No. So, Rich is Ridgeside Canine, Northern California. Um, Ridgeside yep. Canine was actually started by Aaron Taylor in Virginia. Um, and he is definitely somebody you should reach out to and have on the podcast because he is an absolute badass um, okay. and way cooler than me. <laughs> um, he's a retired canine handler um he's a marine and he's a retired canine handler um from loudon county virginia um so yeah, he it takes me i was going to write it down but definitely takes me that yes i will um uh for sure and so he started it and then he started expanding from there and so eric from working dog radio has ridgeside canine ohio um rich has ridgeside canine Northern California, we have North Carolina, Colorado, um, Central Florida, Tampa. Uh, we're kind of all over now. 
Yeah, that, that's right. Because I had um, I had Eric on the podcast and we were talking about it. And for whatever reason, I thought maybe he'd started it. And then I was I was on Police Canine Radio when I went over there. And then obviously Rich is on that podcast. So I thought, oh, maybe, maybe Rich started it. But Aaron Johnson, hey? Yeah, Aaron okay. Taylor. Aaron, oh, sorry, Aaron Johnson. I know an Aaron Johnson. Aaron Taylor. But... <laughs> okay, sweet as. Lucky I didn't reach out to Aaron Johnson. <laughs> I just get some dude on the podcast going, oh. I don't know why the fuck I'm here, but here I am. <laughs> Come on, Aaron Johnson. Give us the deets. Okay. Um, so if somebody wants to reach you, reach out, get some dog training, just talk shit, invite you on their podcast, whatever, where are they going to reach you? So I don't, I don't personally do Facebook. I stopped that many years ago. Um, I have a personal Instagram. Um, it's kind of long. Uh, it's bells, B E L L E S six one nine underscore canine apart, A P A R T. Uh, I don't think there's any other canine aparts out there. So if you search that, you probably find us. Um, obviously the business page is uh, Ridgeside canine underscore Somerville. And the business page is on Facebook as well. Um, not just Instagram. Um, my, I'll be honest, my husband handles most of the social media for the business. God bless him for that. Um, cause that's one thing I can't handle, but obviously I do my, my personal. Um, but I, we answer that stuff every single day. So it's probably the easiest way to get us really. Awesome. Cool. Cool. All right. Um, Hey, thank you so much for coming on the potty. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I appreciate how generous you were with your time and telling us your stories and, you know, sharing some of your vulnerabilities and, and, and some of those things we, we spoke about. So, um, yeah, and d don't hang up. I'm just going to press the stop record button. <laughs> we'll stay on the okay. line. Okay. Right. Hey, thank you so much for coming on. I very much appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. You're ready. Oh, press the button there. Thanks for listening to that episode of the Origin Canine Podcast. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, subscribe to the YouTube channel, give us a rating on your podcast platform, or go to origincanine.com for our tactical canine equipment, which includes collars, leads, harnesses, and merchandise. Thanks for listening, guys.